I should have this uh, mentioned this earlier during prayer, but Jonas and Patty Stava or Stava, I think it's probably Stava, I'm guessing, but they are our missionaries to Norway, and Jonas is in New York, and uh, Patty is here. Turn around, you see her right there standing in the aisle. Patty is here with their three children, and uh, afterwards she's going to leave some prayer cards, I believe, for us to remember them in prayer as they prepare to return to Norway. So uh, please do continue to pray for them as a family and uh, rejoice with them in his recent uh, mercies to them, not only in the giving of a new child, but also in God's mercies to Patty, who went through some difficult times health-wise. So We've been praying for them, so please uh, do greet them after the service. Uh, But now, if you would, turn to uh, the book of Jude, where we find ourselves at the very end of our study, the very last two verses of Jude. We do encourage you, as always, to have your Bible open before you. It is a great, great encouragement to do so as you follow along in the study of God's Word. It is the end of a very brief and yet very striking letter written by our Lord's half-brother by the name of Jude. It has been a letter that has reminded us of all the dangers that we face as we live in a fallen world. And we have been called to action, Jude reminds us, as believers in Jesus Christ, to defend and contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That is the letter's clear and stated purpose In verse 3, we have learned much about the nature of the enemy that we face together as believers and as part of the body of Christ. We've been reminded of our need to prepare ourselves by remembering and then by the admonitions that we find, especially in verses 20 and 21. And then we have been reminded that the Christian life is a call to action, action even in the face of our enemies and towards our enemies, some who may doubt and some who are in great danger. The last time we were together, we studied those last two verses in that section, 22 and 23. Others progress long along the road of salvation, and yet they are facing temptations and doubts, and we are called to help them, to encourage them, to have mercy upon them. And still others who have progressed so far along the road to everlasting destruction We are called to literally snatch them out of the fire with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What may have started as a letter intent on considering with fellow believers the wonders of our salvation has turned into, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a letter letter that does not only do that, but also does it in a remarkable and memorable way. And now this morning, we come to the end of our study and to the greatest height that this letter reaches as Jude adores and praises and blesses our great God. And he does it by way of a glorious, grand doxology, which no less than C.H. Spurgeon writes, there is no doxology, he says, in scripture in his own opinion, which I enjoy more than that one, at the end of the epistle of Jude. I could not agree more. As another writer has said, at the end of Jude's epistle stand two verses that rival the most rapturous language found in all of Scripture. Rapturous means to be taken up, up to heaven itself, 
where we join the angels and the archangels and the saints in glory in praising our great God who has saved us from the wrath to come and who will bring us safely home. And so as we stand to listen to these verses, I invite you to do so. Please stand as we hear these verses read and join in your own hearts in the glory of what these verses say. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. All flesh, that's all of us, are like the grass, and all of our loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, it fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray now that as we come before this, your word, we might be caught up in the rapturous glory of these words, that our hearts might enter into them and give glory and praise and blessing to you. For you alone are worthy, we pray, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I've had these discussions over the years, and I suppose it is right for us to begin by defining, as we look at this passage, what a doxology is. What is a doxology, and how is it contrasted with other forms of Uh, words as we find them in the New Testament and Old Testament alike. A doxology is an ascription of praise to our God. It means to give him glory or to praise God and refers to the people of God adoring and blessing and glorifying him, our great triune God. We do that every week, of course, in our worship service. After the receiving of the tithes and offerings, we sing that familiar doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him all creatures here below, praise him above ye heavenly hosts, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now this giving of praise to God is often confused with a benediction which comes at the end of our service. The one I use every week is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Pastor Fisher uses a different benediction and blessing from God to God's people from Numbers chapter 6. He uses a version of that, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord Make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that is very common at the end of many of the letters of the New Testament to find a benediction which the Apostle Paul is asking for God's blessing to be given to his people. And that is the difference between the two, a benediction and a doxology. A benediction moves from God towards us, the people. When our hands are raised, when our hands are outward facing towards you, it is an indication that we are asking for, praying for, 
authoritatively that God's blessing would come from God to you. A doxology moves in the opposite direction. It moves from God's people to God himself. It's a praise to him. Now, of course, as we think of doxologies, we've already noted the one we began with in Romans chapter 16. But there are many other examples that we find in the Bible. You find many of them in the Psalms, in the writings of David, in the speeches of David. In 1 Chronicles 29, for instance, we read these words. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Psalm 72 has a wonderful doxology at the end of the psalm. It's also the close of one of the books of the psalms, book 2. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That book then ends with the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But the New Testament abounds in so many places with such words of praise and adoration to God from the pen of the apostles. We mentioned Romans 16, but consider the beginning of the book of Ephesians in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then later in chapter 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I could go on. There are many, many doxologies in the Bible. It's worth noting that in each case where we have a doxology in the Bible, it is not some rambling, attached, just thrown at the end, unconnected statement by the writer that has nothing to do with what comes before or after but it is intimately related to the content and the context of the book into which, in which it is found and the surrounding words written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, this contextual idea of doxologies is very much the case when we come to this one at the end of this brief letter of Jude. And so we're going to look at it. This morning, we're going to look at the reasons why God is to be blessed and praised by all who know and all who love him. There's one debate I won't really enter into this morning, and that is the debate as to who Jude is referring to here. Arguments have been made to see these words as referring to God the Father, other arguments as referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are good reasons, good arguments on both sides. But I'm going to approach it the way I think almost every commentator I've read approaches it, and that is they refer to both. For what is true of one person of the Trinity is true of all three. And so when we think of ascribing praise to God, we're thinking of ascribing praise to our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the work of salvation. 
is the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jude gives us these reasons, and we're going to look at three of them this morning as he includes them here in this wonderful expression of praise to God. First, note that he, that is God, is the great preserver of his people. Now to him who is able to keep us or to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep us from stumbling. He begins here for good reason because he has just rehearsed with them the many reasons they are to contend for the faith against powerful enemies that have crept into the church unnoticed. There were many causes for these dear saints to stumble under the false teaching of these believers or professing believers who had crept back into the church and are seeking to lead the people of God astray. There's a place for great doubt and fear as so many other things that threaten to undo this people and us as well. And so Jude begins this ascription of praise to God by reminding them that God is able to keep them from stumbling. Consider the enemy that we face, Satan himself, these false teachers, the world in which we live, our own sinful hearts. In every case, those things which threaten to undo us are the very things that God is able to cause by his power in the midst of those struggles to keep us from stumbling, from falling down. One writer, as I was reading this week, says that that is a great picture of the Christian life. We move from one step to the other. We fall down. We get up. We move from one step to the other. We fall down. We get up. But all the way, the Lord is able to keep us all the way until the end. And so he's able to keep us from this stumbling and falling. John 6, passage that is particularly helpful here, Jesus reminds his hearers that he is the bread of life. He says, I had said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. He's able to keep us, to keep these believers from stumbling. This word keep is all throughout the book of Jude. We saw it in the very beginning. We are those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We are kept by his power. It's literally a word that means to be guarded and protected by God himself in the midst of our enemies. And so he encourages us here by reminding us of his power, powerful preserving of his people. We heard it as well in John chapter 10, the chapter that speaks about Jesus being our good shepherd my sheep, he says, hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me and he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. This is the powerful 
preserving of our God, of his people. Consider then, as you think about this uh, ability of God, he is able to keep us from stumbling. Consider the great power of God as you look at our great enemies. I used this illustration before, and I remember being particularly struck as we went down into these caverns in Virginia. You may remember this illustration, something I've never forgotten. It's a beautiful display of God's glory under the surface of the earth for so few to see and marvel at. As we made our way down Luray Caverns to the very base of where we were going, it was an amazing thing to, to think that God made all of these caverns, all the world that we see, the power of God so clearly on display. At the very bottom there in the deepest part of the tour, there's this great room, you may remember this, with a stalagpipe organ built upon using the natural sounds of the stalactites hanging down from the ceiling. They play various tunes uh, on this demonstration, but on the day that we were there, the man said, the tune that you will hear is a song called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And what an amazing, what an amazing thing to stand in the depths of the earth, in the midst of this sort of room covered by all of this rock that was clearly above us and could easily crush us to remember our God who is strong and able to deliver us, strong to preserve us, a mighty God whose foundations are of old, a strong tower whose foundations run deep and strong, a God and Savior who is able, who is able to keep us from falling and from stumbling. As you sit here this morning, do you know him as such a God right now in your life? Do you know him as such a God as you face various trials and temptations and enemies all around? Do you know his power as you take your stand against sin in your life on a daily basis? Do you know that he is able to keep you? Do you know that he is able to guard you, to protect you? If so, will you then join Jude in giving to God all glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore? He's not only the great uh, preserver of his people, he is the great perfecter of his people, Jude goes on to say. He is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy. Here we may see Christ more clearly in this section, as it is certainly true on that great day to which Jude is looking, the great day of judgment, a judgment that these false teachers have already, if you will, entered into because of the Lord's wrath against them, but a day where Jesus will present us his people before his Father the glory of his Father with great joy. His keeping of us, his preserving of us, is with respect to that day, a great day when he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Jude is bringing that to the forefront in these words as he speaks of this being blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
He's talking about that great day of judgment that is approaching when all men and women and children will stand before the throne of God's judgment and give account of their lives. And notice what Jude says. He is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Paul writes in Colossians 1, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now we hear those words, don't we? And we, we struggle at times. How is that possible? How can it ever be? As we grow daily in grace and in faith, as we draw closer to him, we, we see our sins more clearly. We've often said that. And we wonder how it will be so that such a wretch as I can be declared and found to be blameless before the presence of his glory. How is that possible for any one of us? Well, the answer, of course, the answer is because of the gospel. The faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That is why Jude has been so careful throughout this letter to warn people to contend for this faith, for this gospel, because we have no other hope as sinners but the grace of God and the ability of God being sovereign over all things to present us as perfectly spotless and blameless before his presence. If you have trouble believing this, then you are clearly not looking at Christ but only at yourself. This is the Lord's work in salvation. This is his great work in us, that he is able to transform us by his grace. He grants to us and gives to us a righteousness that is alien to us, that comes from outside of us. He clothes us in that and thereby is able to present us before his father as blameless and spotless. Paul, in speaking of marriage, makes this analogy that we know quite well, speaking of the husband's love for his wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. Notice Jude adds this little phrase, and it's an important one. It is with great joy that he does this. I think this does refer to his joy and our joy alike. His joy is our joy. Our joy is his joy. He delights in us as we delight in him. Such is the union between Christ and his people and so it is with great joy that he comes before the Father as we view this from the aspect of Christ. It is with great joy that he approaches the Father on that day, as Hebrews reminds us, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, Jesus talking to his father. Behold, I am the children God has given to me. Here are the people you gave me. You see the scene that Jude is anticipating and describing as he talks about the presenting of God's people blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It is an incredibly joyous scene where God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. It is what I believe Isaiah 53 anticipates as Isaiah looks to the suffering servant and, and the very cost of his own life and the, the payment that is required in order that this might take place. Yet, Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is the suffering servant, Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It is that joy of the suffering servant now seeing all that the father has given him. Now presented before the presence of his glory with great joy. The work now finished through Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that great hymn that we sing often here. The last stanza of yet not I but through Christ in me. With every breath I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know that he will renew me. Until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That that hymn is a picture of what Jude is picturing here. That hymn is the joy of the believer looking unto his or her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and giving all glory to God. That, that is what God is able to do to present us blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy. Do you believe this right now in your life? Do you know him as such as you face various trials and temptations? Do you know his power to keep you until that day and the promise to present you as blameless before his glory? Do you know him as Savior who has washed away all of your sins and given you a robe of righteousness in which you now stand, blameless before him? If so, will you join Jude in giving to God all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever? Amen. He is also, finally, the great provider for his people. That's what Jude means, I think, when he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, all of this salvation, the protection, the preserving, the presentation of us before the Father is blameless. All of this comes through Jesus Christ, 
There is no other way for this to take place. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And how infinitely wise it was of God to save sinners the way that he did. The Bible speaks from the very beginning of the great plan and wisdom of God in saving a people for himself. From the very opening chapters of Genesis, when man falls into sin, he speaks of one who will come, the promised Messiah, given as a promise to Adam and to Eve, and through them to all who would believe. The Apostle Paul, I think, in speaking of this very wisdom of God's salvation, writes at the end of Romans 11 these powerful and familiar words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given to him a gift, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To give God these things obviously does not mean that we are adding something to him. We're not adding glory or majesty or dominion or authority to God. He possesses those things in and of himself. It means that we, his people, understanding what God is able to do and is doing and will do in Christ, it means that we long and desire for all to see these attributes of God, our Savior, in every area of life as he works out this salvation in us and through us. And you see, this is what's happening all over the world. That's why we rejoice when we hear of people coming to faith in Jesus as our missionaries tell us about the growth of their churches in which they are laboring as our Armenia team goes and works in Armenia later this year in the summer and returns to tell us of what God is doing there, we will join with them in rejoicing in all that God is doing as he has provided so faithfully, so faithfully for his people through Jesus Christ. You see, that's what this gospel is all about. Again, that's why Jude is so intent on saying, contend for this gospel because we have no other hope. Do you believe this right now in your life? Do you know him as such as you face various trials and temptations? Do you know him as your savior, the one and only one who is able to save your soul? He is the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ. Do you know him as Savior who has washed away all your sins, cleansed you, brought you near with great joy before his Father? If so, will you join Jude then in giving to God all glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever? Amen. One writer says this, and I remember it years ago, this little word now, we know what before all time means. It means in the past. We know what forever means. It means in the future. But he also adds now, right now. This is not a response of the believer once all of this is complete as we stand before the Father with great joy. 
This is now our response. This is our heart's response to God. In listening to a series we heard a few years back at Banner of Truth Conference, I agree with the commentator, the writer, Highwell Jones, when he says that there is something significant about this little word now, that all of this has bearing right now in our lives, in whatever we're doing and whatever God is doing in our life right now. Can you praise him now? Can you give him glory and praise now? Could these readers to which Jude is writing in the midst of the dangers they were facing, Jude is saying, right now, will you give to God all glory? Now is when God deserves all glory, as well as in times past and in the future and forever. I think that's an important thing to note. Right now, no matter what it is you and I are walking through, God deserves all praise, all glory and majesty, all dominion, all authority, because he is the God who is able. I mentioned all along in our study what Jude has set out to do originally, which, is, which was exactly what he did, even though he shifted his focus to take aim at those who crept in unknowingly and who posed a great danger to the believers to whom he writes. Isn't what we see here at the very end of the letter, isn't that so intimately connected to everything that precedes it? Exactly what our faith is all about. It's this faith, this doxology of praise is a reflection, I think. It's a summary of what the Lord so graciously allowed his church to recover. For instance, in the days of the Reformation, the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria. That's what this is, soli deo gloria. The whole of this salvation from beginning to end is from God and from him alone. This is the faith, Jude says, once for all delivered unto the saints. And it is why we praise him, we adore him, and we glorify him. Remember, not so long ago, when we began our study of this small, often overlooked book of Jude towards the end of our Bibles, that we noted how Jude in the beginning was very eager to write to these believers of their common salvation. His intent was to glory with them in all that God had done for them in Jesus Christ to rejoice with them in God's mercies and abounding grace to them. He wanted to encourage them in these things, things which we can see even in the first two verses as he began his letter. At those verses, he was still intent, it seems, before the Spirit interrupted his writing, if you will. He was intent of reveling and rejoicing in what God had done to those who are called, called by God to those who are beloved in God the Father, and to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. He even prayed as they were remembering who they were in Jesus, that the mercy and peace and love of God would be multiplied to them, that they would know it more and more in a multiplication sort of way. But then he seems to have been stopped in his tracks, as it were, and the letter reads that way by Jude saying, I, I found it necessary, he says. 
I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. He was so deeply concerned. He loved them, called them beloved all throughout for their well-being and safety. For ungodly people had crept in unnoticed who perverted the grace of God into licentiousness, who denied our only Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And you remember how the rest of the letter is filled with a series of commands and warnings about how we're to contend for the faith, how these false teachers were destined for God's judgment, how we're to avoid them and not follow them. Now at the end of the letter, it appears that Jude could no longer contain himself. He needed to return to his original intent. As much as he was compelled to change his focus in the beginning, he was equally compelled to return to his theme of rejoicing in and praising God, the God who saves, who rescues, who keeps, who presents us before the Father in heaven with great joy. And he could only do what we must do now and always to this God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be all things, he says, glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore. There is perhaps, as we think of these things, the importance of now, the importance of living this way now and giving glory to God. There is perhaps no place when a person must come to grips with what he or she believes than at the moment of death itself. Remember this illustration, I use it in another context years ago. It goes like this. One pastor writes, many of you knew and mentions a name in this congregation. One of the godliest women I have ever had the privilege of knowing. She loved her Savior and she trusted in him alone for salvation. And she loved his word. And she wrote out her instructions to her family for what was to be preached upon at her funeral. And this is what she said to her family. At my funeral, I'd like the one presiding to remind my family that Jesus, my Savior, is able to present me before God's glorious presence without fault, sinless. And he has now, at the moment of death, done just that. The real me will be at that moment in God's presence not just there, but there with great joy. That means not only my joy, but the joy of the one who receives me. Praise God, the only God and Savior. To him be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. And then she says and writes out in the margin, See Jude 24 and 25. She got it exactly right. She understood. She rested and trusted in it to the very death that she faced. That's what Jude is saying. Is that where you are right now? Right this moment? May it be so by God's grace alone. Let us pray. Oh, Father, our great God, the one who is able to do all that we have studied and the one to whom we give all praise and glory, dominion and power, now 
in ages past and forevermore. For you indeed are worthy, O God, to be praised in this way. May your people here gathered be a people like Jude, so moved by the glory of your salvation that you have wrought for us, that we would be compelled in our lives to speak and to live out this doxology of praise to you. We pray that you would grant this for your own name's sake, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to